Hi everyone, and welcome back to the podcast, Be the Blank Your Mom Wants You to Marry. Alongside my co-host, Ariana Kennysburg, my name is Gabrielle Resnick, and we're excited you're here with us. The goal of our podcast is to be a guide for young women like ourselves exploring life and career paths. We will be broadcasting our conversations with successful women across industries and professions, offering an intimate look at the opportunities, challenges, and rewards for working women. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the program. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing the Vice Mayor and Commissioner of the City of Hollywood, Florida, Carol Shuham. Carol was born in Maryland and completed her undergraduate degree in civil civil engineering from John Hopkins University. She then went to law school at the University of Maryland and has been practicing law for more than 30 years, representing companies in the construction industry. She and her husband, Marty, are partners in the law firm of Shuham and Shuham PA here in Hollywood, Florida. As vice mayor and Hollywood commissioner of District 1, Carol's priorities include addressing the local impacts of sea level rise, improving code compliance, tackling ongoing traffic and safety concerns, preserving the city of Hollywood's unique history and charm, as well as working with neighborhood public schools. Her focus is on making Hollywood a role model city for economic and environmental sustainability. Carol has received several awards and recognitions, including the Florida League of Cities Home Rural Hero and the Broward County School Board Outstanding Mentor of the Year. Vice Mayor Shuham completed the Florida League of Cities Institute for elected municipal officials and received the Certificate of Achievement from Broward County Leaders Water and Climate Academy. She is also a Hollywood Community Emergency Response Team member. Vice Mayor Shuham and her husband have been married for 35 years and have three sons, Simon, Matt, and Ben. Vice Mayor Shuham, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and welcome to the podcast. Thank you both so much. I'm delighted to be here. Mrs. Shuham, you're the first elected official we have had on the podcast. We are very excited to talk to you about your professional and political career. Before we dive in, we just want to provide some structure for our conversation today. We want to focus on three areas. First, your professional career, starting with your early life, college, law school, and your law practice with your husband. Second, your work-life experience, being a mother, raising a family, and what that looks like within the context of your professional and political career. And finally, your decision to seek public office and the journey from being a candidate to getting elected to serving as commissioner and vice mayor. So let's begin with your early life and career. You went to Johns Hopkins University and studied civil engineering. Why did you choose that university and area of study? Um, My dad went to Johns Hopkins, and so I applied to a few different schools and was really excited to be accepted there. Um, And I grew up not far from there. So even though I lived on campus, I could be home (laughs) within like 40 minutes. And um, I was a little nervous about going too far from home. So it was a perfect balance. It allowed me to establish independence and and live away from my parents. But if I needed to get home, uh, I usually would go home for Friday night dinners and uh, come back and do my laundry and things like that. So it was a perfect location for me. I started out actually as a math major when I was in high school. That was uh, something that I loved. Um, But the deeper I got into it, I just felt like at that time, because I'm way older than you guys, 
really it was just the beginning of computer programming and things like that. And there just wasn't an awful lot in that I had been made aware of for math majors other than uh, like in the insurance field and things like that. So a few, uh, I guess at the middle of my freshman year, Hopkins decided they had a lot of engineering disciplines there, but they decided to reopen their civil engineering department. And it was an interesting story because they had shut it down in, I think, the the 60s. So they kept all these other disciplines, but they had shut civil engineering down. And at that point, the school was all male. So when they reopened it, when I was there in the uh, late 70s, it would be the first women civil engineers to graduate from Johns Hopkins. And I love that. So my roommate, who was also a math major, myself and one other woman, we decided that we would uh, enroll in this new civil engineering department. And we were in fact, the first three women to graduate from Johns Hopkins with a civil engineering degree. <laughs> That's very neat. Um, from college, you went to law school. Did you always know that you wanted to pursue a career in law? And if not, what inspired you? No, I didn't. I was very excited and I enjoyed engineering and I thought that this was it. I was going to design bridges and work on uh, water and water treatment systems and everything about it was intriguing to me until I got my first job as a civil engineer. And what it entailed really was I got a great job at a wonderful engineering firm in Baltimore near the college. Um, and what I I guess I hadn't thought much about was that it entailed sitting alone at your desk for much of the day drafting as, an, as a starting engineer, designing and drafting. And I quickly realized this was not for me. I'm, I'm too much of a, a people person. So uh, again, my dad, who was an engineer, he, he worked his entire career with Westinghouse, which is um, since broken up into different things, but he uh, in his later in life, he decided that he was going to go to law school. So here I had this role model again of an engineer and a lawyer. So I decided I would try. So I only practiced engineering for about a year and then uh, went to law school and thankfully made it through and decided to pursue a career that combined civil engineering and law. And what was it like being a woman in law school? When I went to law school, it was pretty, it was, uh, pretty even at that point. I won't say it was 50-50, but uh, I think nowadays it's even a higher percentage of female in law school than, than men at some schools. But even then, uh, which was in the early 80s, um, it, was, it was a non-issue. Uh, it became more of an issue when I went out into my career, I ended up <clears throat> being corporate counsel or general counsel to several construction companies. And basically what that means is that you're a lawyer, but you work for a corporation as opposed to a lot of lawyers that work for law firms and they represent a multitude of different clients. At the beginning of my career, for most of my career, for about 25 years, I was what's called in-house counsel. And working as a woman in the early 80s, uh, mid 80s, even into the well into the 90s, I would say, as a woman in construction, that was um, a little bit tough at times, I would say, but, um, you know, you just plowed through it. Now there's all sorts of organizations, uh, 
National Association of Women in Construction. And I even started women in construction organizations within the companies that I worked for. So it's still a low percentage of women involved in the construction industry compared to men, but it's much more um, hospitable. And what was your social life during, like during the years you were in law school? How did you balance friends, family, and free time? That's a great question. Uh, I also went to law school not too far from home, so I was able to go home as needed um, and be with my family. I was very close with my parents and my brothers at the time. And um, law schools, it's a lot different than undergrad. In your undergrad, it's a lot about your social life. And um, you know, you want to balance in college, maintaining good grades, but also having fun. It's a unique once in a lifetime experience to go to college. Grad school, in my opinion, is a little bit different. It's much more career centric and you're there for a purpose. Uh, you have decided pretty much what you want to do for your career. And um, so I just studied as, I, I won't say I was in the top 1% of my class or anything like that, but I studied and I did well past the bar while maintaining a nice group of friends. But everybody had pretty much a similar interest, which was to make it through uh, law school successfully. So the the emphasis was more on school than on social versus undergrad. <laughs> and you were a board certified in construction law. How did you come to specialize in this area? So <clears throat> the Florida bar has different um, disciplines where you can get a unique certification. There's, there's many. Uh, if you want to be a family law lawyer, you can get certified in that. A bankruptcy lawyer, you can be certified in that. Um, for me, because I had an engineering degree, uh, I spent most of my career in construction. So at some point, I decided I was going to study for this certification. And other than the bar exam, which you take after law school, that certification was probably one of the more difficult exams. Um, you know, it's you take it at a time in your life where you've been out of school for a while, so you're not so used to studying. And it, it was a challenge. So I was very grateful to have it and you have to maintain it. So uh, to maintain that certification, you have to take a lot of continuing education courses and things like that over the years. COVID recovery. When and how did you transition to your own practice? So I, like I said, I'm, I'm, I was glad that we uh, got to this because I think that <clears throat> I had to make a pivotal decision in my um, career as a construction lawyer and as in-house counsel. In the early 90s, I had three uh, sons in three years. I had a baby in 91, 93, and 94. <laughs> and as much as I loved my job, and I did, that was a lot. And I had a lot of help at home. I had everything, but I still... There came a point in time where I just thought I really need to uh, reduce the amount that I'm working. And so I, I sat down with this company and we negotiated a part-time schedule, which back at that point in the early 90s was unheard of. There was no such thing as flex time, working from home, nothing. But <clears throat> And I was in construction, which was a very male-dominated field and they were not overly sensitive about families, but I happened to work for some really wonderful guys and uh, they worked with me. And I was able to continue working there on a part-time basis for 
for many, many more years until my kids were older. Um, <clears throat> as the kids grew up, my demands at home lessened. You know, when they were in high school, they didn't really need me anymore, right? So I had time on my hands. At that point, I had hired other attorneys to work for the corporation who worked for basically for me and ultimately with me in the legal departments. And I went to the, the company, my husband had started a firm and I said to them, you know, I'm only here this many hours a week. I would like to, in addition to working with you, work part-time with my, my husband and take some independent clients. And they were great with that also, as long as we did a conflicts check. So in the construction industry, you might imagine if you have a general contractor, he hires a subcontractor. If I'm working for the general contractor, I could not then represent that subcontractor. So we had a very clear agreement about making sure there were no conflicts. And with that, I had their blessing. And for a while, I worked for in both capacities. Once I decided to run for politics, which is another crazy story, um, I, I stopped working in-house and went to, um, you know, basically doing the city business and working with um, my private firm. And what kind of clients and cases do you deal with? So all along, my focus has been on construction contracts. So you hear a lot about uh, attorneys that go into court and argue a case. I really don't do that. What I um, focus my practice on is contract negotiations. And so when a, um, let's say the Marlins decide they want to build a new stadium, right? The first thing they have to do is have a designer design that. And then they have to have a contractor build that stadium. Well, to build that stadium, the Marlins and the contractor, and this is a hypothetical, they have to enter into a very complex construction contract. And those are the kind of things that I do in my practice, negotiate complex construction contracts. It could either be between the owner and the general contractor, between a general contractor and a subcontractor, between the owner and the architect, any, any of those different um, levels in the construction process. That, that was the focus of my career. And what would you say are some pros and cons of your job? Um, I think that generally working in the field of law can be very stressful. Uh, lawyers, I think, have a tendency to have to feel like everything they're doing is perfect. And there is liabilities if you, you know, don't do a good job for your client. You, you don't want to commit malpractice. And so I think that the stress of being a lawyer is something that you have to watch out for. You have to have confidence in what you're doing, but you also have to realize no one is perfect. Um, so it's that balance, I would say, uh, finding that balance can be a struggle. Um, it's a very common struggle among lawyers. And it's important for young lawyers to kind of get a handle on that early in their career and so that they don't torture themselves. Um, there's no such thing as perfection. Um, for me, uh, there's so many pros. I think that um, working in the field of construction law is one of the few areas of law where you actually get to see the tangible results of your work. So you negotiated a contract, you get to go see that amazing hospital that was constructed or 
whatever it might be, a, a stadium or a tunnel or whatever it was that you worked on, at some point you actually get to go see it. And in addition to negotiating the contracts at the beginning, a lot of times there's disputes that arise during the course of the construction, uh, whether something was included in the initial scope of the contractor's work or it's something extra that the owner's demanding. So those disputes we try to resolve without going to court. So that's very gratifying also when you can take two parties that have a real opportunity to become adversaries and help them stay friends through the end of the project. Right. And what is it like working with your husband? Uh, well, we are extremely compatible, so that's good. Um, throughout most of the time we've worked together, we have separate offices. So he tends to go into the office. I tend to work at a home office. So even though we are in, in we are partners in our firm, we have very different practices. He doesn't do anything that I do. He works on a lot of commercial litigation, commercial law and landlord tenant issues. And I don't really work on anything that he does. So we're partners, <clears throat> we share everything. We joke that my name is first in the name of Shuham and Shuham, um, but we're not on top of each other all day, every day. One area of focus for us on this podcast is how successful women like you balance work and family responsibilities. Can you tell us a little bit about how you manage raising your three boys and also maintained a successful law career? So like I said, I was very, very fortunate when the kids were you know, entering school and the time where I think a mother uh, or a parent, not just a mother, um, is most demanded to be at home. I was very lucky to be able to work part-time. Um, I think nowadays it wouldn't be so obvious that it would be the wife that would go part-time. I hear a lot of husbands now are, are becoming the part-time uh, worker or, or a partner. Um, but in our case, it worked out well, I think in part because I was working for a company that was so allowed me such flexibility. Um, so in hindsight, that part of the life balance was, I was very fortunate. I will say the negative for me of that decision was it kind of pulled me out of um, a career path to, um, you know, become a, a, an executive at the company, for example, or whatever it might've been. I pulled myself out to spend more time with my kids. And that's really, I think in today's world where maybe parents have a little bit a better chance of being able to have that life balance without sacrificing um, some of the gains that they make on a, on a career scale. Um, but for me, it was definitely worth it. I wouldn't trade it for anything, but it was a trade-off. And what advice would you have to offer on balancing work with family? I think, I think that the workforce, and particularly now after COVID with everyone who has figured out how to work from home and just what we're doing, this did not exist in my career. My, my job was negotiating contracts. I could do it via Zoom or WebEx all day long. I don't need to be in the same room ever almost with anyone. That, that was not the case during my career. So I think technology will make this much better for people that are raising children to do so from home. I think that the open-mindedness of employers will make life much better. 
I think that the abundance of women professionals in the world has changed perspectives at high levels. Although there's many uh, glass ceilings still to be shattered, um, I do believe that it's a every every year that goes by becomes better. Although I know young people now are still struggling with that balance. Um, things are, are, have progressed in large part, I think, due to technology. But I would say it's very hard to work at home with small children. So you'd have to make some accommodations. Like if I had three toddlers, we could not be doing this. So I think for mothers and fathers that are trying to work at home with kids, just, you know, families that went through it during COVID, it sounded incredibly stressful. But if it's a choice that you're making or a, a work schedule that you and your spouse are working out, you really have to be um, cognizant of the fact that you cannot work and take care of children at the same time. You're gonna have to have daycare of some sort or you know, make, make a, an arrangement with your spouse until such time as the kids are in school. And do you set personal and professional goals? I'm sorry? Do you set personal and professional goals? I think at this point, um, I, I used to do that. And my husband actually was really good at that. Every year we would sit down around New Year's and we would you know, contemplate what the year had looked like more personally than professionally. Um, my, my track that I was on in-house was very set. There was not a lot of room to, to move up unless I was going to go full-time, which I didn't do. Um, and he, you know, we had our own firm and we were partners. So that was that. So our focus annually would be on personal goals. Um, a lot of it were simple things like how many trips we wanted to take or how could we save enough money to make sure the kids could get braces and college and camp and things like that later weddings. <laughs> uh, so a lot of plans about savings and, and travel and family time and things like that. And what daily habits or habits do you have that you believe are integral to your success? That I believe are what? Integral to your success. Ah, well, that's a great question. I think that staying healthy is number one. Um, that if you don't take care of yourself, eventually I think that's going to hurt your career, either because you're gonna miss time that you're not well, or that you know mentally you have allowed yourself to be so stressed that things start to crumble. So I would say being, you know, you don't have to be an Olympic athlete, but, but make sure that you're taking care of yourself in the simplest way. I try to walk every day. I try to do yoga several times a week. Not a, it's not a lot. I'm certainly not a triathlete or anything like that, but I do try to make sure that <clears throat> I keep my weight under control and things like that and keep, I always do physicals every year. So I think um, taking care of yourself and, and making sure mentally and physically uh, that you have, uh, you know, if, you, if you're not doing well, then you're not taking care of the people around you in a, in a good way either. Mm -hmm. And I read a lot. And, <laughs> and what does the first and last hour of the day look like for you? Well, now that we rescued a dog two years ago, the first hour is taking her for a very long walk. Um, and then, you know, coming home, catching a little bit up on news and social media, especially now that I'm a, a commissioner, it's crazy how much uh, time is social media driven. It's not a healthy thing, but I do that early in the morning. And at the end of the day, it's, um, I read before I fall asleep most, most, 
Yes, right. And are there any books that you would recommend for young women to read for inspiration or knowledge? Oh, I used to really recommend Lean In, like for my nieces and people like that. And I still do. I think the book is dated and it has flaws looking back by Sheryl Sandberg. I'm sure you've, you've both heard of this book. Um, Sheryl Sandberg was, she just uh, retired, but she was the CEO of Facebook. And she wrote a book several years ago called Lean In. And it moved me because it was past, uh, a little bit past its usefulness for me but I felt that it was helpful for young women to just read it and see that you should think about these things before you go into a meeting at work, especially with regard to your position or your salary. So you need to always have a plan, have a strategy, understand what the market is willing to pay, what uh, people in your city, in your occupation are doing, what their job requires and things like that. So for me, that book was helpful to share with my nieces, um, and young women in my life. Um, and I, I guess I would still recommend it. It's probably now dated, but there might be some more current books that um, offer similar advice. But the bottom line for me, which was not something that I really had a mentor to talk to about as a woman, which was don't go in and into a meeting uh, with respect to job position or salary without being thoroughly prepared and and don't just take what people offer you you know if it's not acceptable you have to negotiate on your own behalf and what is the best productivity tool or device that you have bought or started using in the last two years say it again what's the best productivity tool that you have started using or bought in the last two years oh that's <laughs> Not a great question for me. I, my productivity has probably declined since I became an elected official because, like I said, I find myself wanting to keep up with city events. And so I'm, I guess it's productive in this, in that I'm learning about what's happening in the community, but I spend way too much time uh, reading political stuff uh, nationally, uh, statewide, and especially citywide. And so we now want to transition to talk a little bit about your political career. Can you tell us how you got involved in the political process and when you decided to run for local office? Yes, uh, it was an unlikely uh, sequence of events. I was president of my high school class, and that was the last time I had contemplated anything having to do with politics. <clears throat> But in about 2013, my husband and I, after our youngest left for college, we moved from Cooper City to Hollywood Beach. And so we were so blessed to be able to wake up every day on the beach and uh, we loved it and was just kind of enjoying ourselves. And my husband at that time was very active in the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce. He was president of the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce eventually, I'm not sure what year. And so we would go to a lot of chamber events. And in about two, the early 2018, I believe, I went to a Hollywood Chamber of Commerce breakfast and the speaker was a woman named Dr. Jennifer Dorado. And she is the chief environmental, um, uh, let's see, what's her title? I think chief environmental officer for Broward County. And she's basically a genius. 
And she spoke at this breakfast about sea level rise, which I knew what it was, but I had never really focused so much on Hollywood. And she was basically telling about what Hollywood could look like in so many years. And she had charts and graphs and she was just completely captivating. And I truly was a little bit shaken when I left there. And so I, you know, I was talking to my husband. He was like, well, you should, you know, what's happening in Hollywood, go find out. And right around that time, Hollywood had started a, was just starting a task force for dunes. It was called a dune master plan task force. So I applied to get on there, my new, you know, activist self. I was gonna go and make sure we were planting dunes in Hollywood. And I was very fortunate to get appointed to that committee. And that's kind of how it started. And then very shortly thereafter, we learned that the commissioner for Hollywood Beach, uh, Deborah Case, who was a wonderful commissioner, had decided to step down at the end of her term, which was 2018. And so a few people who had met me through my husband's work in the chamber or my work in, I'm um, a mentor at, in, in high schools, um, a few people just approached me and said, hey, you live in District 1, would you consider running for office? And I had just never thought about it, but that's how it happened. <laughs> and can you tell us a little bit about the process of becoming a candidate and running a campaign? A little bit, because I ran in 2018, and I'm very excited to say in 2022, I was unopposed. So even though the election's in November, I'm already reelected. But I will tell you my experience in 2018 was eye-opening, because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I was very fortunate that one of my neighbors on Hollywood Beach was involved in political campaigns before. And so she was a huge help to me as far as <clears throat> who do you call to get mailers printed up? Where are people getting those cool t-shirts? How do you get yard signs on people's yards? I knew nothing. So I had a very wonderful friend help me with all of that. Um, I was running against two gentlemen um, and they were not experienced candidates. Well, I was lucky because the, when Deborah Case stepped down, there was no incumbent. It's very difficult to run against the person who's successfully in office. But in this case, the three of us, uh, we were all uh, vying for a seat where there was no incumbent. And um, I think for me, I very early on focused heavily on the environment and sea level rise and the things that interested me um, and concerned me just happened to be the same things that really seemed to touch um, the, the minds and hearts of the people in my district. It was environmental issues, uh, not allowing overdevelopment, making sure the environment was uh, you know, first and foremost, making sure we lived in safe communities. Um, and so I think that it, just because I didn't know, you know, I didn't really have an agenda other than what was best for Hollywood and for District One, people agreed with me and, and it turned out to be a wonderful experience. I met so many amazing people. You literally knock on every door. I, I'm great friends with people that I met that year. Um, and it's just proved to be kind of a life-changing experience. And what are your responsibilities as commissioner? 
So <clears throat> every city has a little bit different charter, but uh, the city of Hollywood, our responsibilities are two primary ones, and that is setting the budget and setting policy. Um, when people interact with their commissioners, they are mainly encounter the third, which is acting as a liaison between the residents and the city staff. Hollywood is run by a city manager and has a huge staff. And the commissioners aren't allowed to direct the staff to do anything, but we can connect residents with the right departments and the right people to help them. If residents are getting frustrated that something in the community is not being taken care of, we can help uh, get to those resolutions. So those are really the three big things. Budget, policy, those are very formal, strict things we do. And then of course, acting as the liaison and helping our residents. And what would you say is so important about local government? You know, there's an expression that all politics is local. And I think that's so, so true because there's, you know, we read so much about the presidential campaigns and Senate, you know, US Senate and things like that. But local politicians, they know their community, they know their constituents. We are the ones at the ground level that see exactly what the problems are. So while I um, have so much respect for people that serve at the state and federal level, they're much further from the neighborhoods than we are. So, you know, for example, in Hollywood right now, we have a huge issue with um, short-term vacation rentals, right? Uh, but the state has taken a position that cities are not allowed to prohibit short-term vacation rentals, basically Airbnbs, in any neighborhood. And so that is something where maybe at the state level, they don't understand what this is doing to our neighborhoods. It's turning our neighborhoods into hotels, basically. So I think that local politics is the most important politics. Uh, it doesn't get the press that it deserves, and it doesn't get the participation it deserves, but it has the greatest impact on residents. Is your trash getting picked up, right? Are your streets flooding? Things like that. That's all happening at the city level. And how much time does it take up? And is it a paid position? It is extremely time-consuming, much more so than I thought. Um, for me, it's not so much in the summer. Um, we have a recess uh, from July to the end of August, but during the rest of the year, for me, it's, it's the equivalent of full-time. By the time we add up all the meetings, all the interactions with residents, emails are nonstop, um, and it's uh, low-paying. It's a $30,000 a year position. I think the intent is that it, it would be part-time, but I know for me and, and several of the commissioners, we pour our heart and soul into this and it can't be done on, on uh, now you, you can work, you can have another job, we, most of us do, but that means your nights and weekends are, are um, really devoted to this. Mm -hmm. And what are you most passionate about and what successes have you seen? Well, it changes because once you have a success, you move on to the next thing. But I would say um, for me right now, we are about to um, equip all of our police officers with body cameras. When I started, Hollywood was one of the very few jurisdictions in Florida that did not have that. And I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. I just, just assumed every police department wears body cameras these days. 
Um, and so shortly after being elected, I met with the police chief and it has taken a while. Uh, it's a very expensive thing, but we are finally there. Uh, we got a $1.7 million uh, grant to help us with the expenses. And uh, thanks to Debbie Wasserman Schultz's office, she helped us with that. And um, so that's one. Uh, we also passed one of the most stringent single-use plastic ordinances in the state of Florida, where we do not allow single-use plastic on any city property, including the beach. So if you come to Hollywood Beach, please leave your plastic bottles at home. Um, we, oh, there's, there's a lot. The, um, even though we're struggling with our short-term vacation rentals, we Hollywood uh, last year, and this is something that, that I was deeply involved in, we passed the strongest short-term vacation rental ordinance in light of the state law that now many cities throughout the state are um, plagiarizing, which we're happy to allow them to do it, uh, but we have set the standard on short-term rental ordinances as of now, and we're revisiting it to see if we can make it even a little bit stronger. Um, we uh, passed an investment policy where the city, when it invests funds, makes sure that they're not being invested in tobacco products, firearms, or fossil fuels, and focuses on investing with companies that um, are uh, treating their employees with uh, equity and respect. So that was a very uh, significant change in the city. Uh, we opened our dog beach from three afternoons to seven days a week. So if you have a dog, come out and see the Hollywood dog beach. Um, and the list, the list goes on. There's been a lot and um, extremely, very extremely proud of the work I've done in these four years, but there's so much, so much more to do. So I'm looking so forward what to are, the second. What are three other changes you'd like to see here in the city in the future? Um, well, I think that we need to really uh, look at our zoning laws to make sure that we are protecting the barrier island um, and that we are protecting our environment from overdevelopment while at the same time permitting and encouraging development and redevelopment where it belongs. For example, we just approved a huge project on Young Circle. Um, we're focusing on Dixie Highway, Federal Highway 441. Um, I am really going to work in the coming four years on protecting historic structures in the city of Hollywood. We've lost the SunTrust building. Um, it's a very, very difficult issue uh, because people come in, they buy old properties and they want to rip down what's there. But we have a very unique history in Hollywood. And sometimes when you just build new, 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 the city loses its charm and it loses its history. So I think we have to be very careful about that. Um, and I think that we have issues in Hollywood with homelessness. We have housing shortages that are becoming critical because of how valuable housing has become in Hollywood. Uh, the average uh, value of a home has gone up almost 12% in the past year because everyone from the cold areas is moving to Florida. So those are a few and, and there's more. That's why I decided to run a second term. Just it's hard to make things happen. Like the body camera example, it took years. Um, but once it does, then you, can't wait to do the next thing. 
I would say for me, one of the biggest challenges is that you have these ideas and visions of what Hollywood could be, uh, but you spend a lot, a lot of those 40 some hours a week with the day-to-day -day concerns of residents, which are really important, whether it's a pothole on their street or barking dogs next door, you know, you want to help them and answer their emails, but at the same time, you want to leave yourself enough energy and brain power to focus on some of the really big things. And what skills are critical to your success as commissioner? I think, you know, it's funny because we started talking about why I got out of being a civil engineer and went to law. I think it's, it's, it goes right back to that. I think you have to be a people person. Um, you are interacting with people all day long, all different kinds of people, a lot of disgruntled people, um, and you have to be able to handle that. I, I was not a thick-skinned person when I started this. I have become much more thick-skinned and you just have to be. So you have to be kind and respectful, but you also have to um, be prepared and understand the issues and defend your position. And when did you become vice mayor? So the city of Hollywood rotates vice mayor every year. So it's not like a promotion or anything. The mayor is elected as mayor, then there's six commissioners and every year, the uh, another commissioner becomes vice mayor. So from November, I think it was December of last year till December of this year, I'll be vice mayor. But it's a it's a really a function of uh, if the mayor is unavailable, then you step in and if you have to sign something or things like that. But it's it's more of a um, a title. And do you plan to continue at the city level, or are you interested in state or federal office? I think this will be it for me. I get asked a lot about that. <clears throat> I have gone to Tallahassee, before I ran for, for commission, I had never even been to the state legislature in Tallahassee. And I went up there once and I just immediately knew this is not for me. Um, the, the nice thing about city politics is it's nonpartisan. It doesn't matter what party you're affiliated with. But in Tallahassee and at the federal, the state and federal level, you declare your party and you run and, and that's that. So I think that flexibility and that, you know, I, I, I'm a liberal Democrat it's in, 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 in Tallahassee, that's a very tough road. And I have so much respect for the Democrats that are up there fighting, um, but it's a, it would be so frustrating for me because it's a super Republican majority right now. Um, and I think without those, you know, those levels of experience, certainly um, I'm very happy with our uh, Congresswoman and uh, I don't see myself uh, running beyond the city level. And what advice would you give to young people interested in getting involved in the political process? So I came obviously very late to this, um, although I was, I always, I read the newspaper and I was aware what was happening as far as being involved in politics. There's a lot of really great organizations. For example, Broward has the Broward Young Democrats. I'm sure there's a, a parallel organization if you're a Republican. Um, but more than the political thing, I think that if there's something that you're interested in, whether it's the environment or um, uh, animal protection, whatever it might be that interests you, there is a uh, an issue that will require intervention by some politician at some level. So I think that's probably what I would say is pick the one or two issues that you really are interested in 
I'm not a big one for the word passion. I don't think you have to be passionate about it, but I think that you have to be intrigued by it and want to learn more about it. And that can very easily lead you to a career in politics. And you also do an enormous amount of volunteering. How do you suggest young women interested in volunteering get involved? I think in a very similar way. Um, you know, just to pick a simple example, if, if, if you love animals, then volunteer at the Humane Society or some other shelter. Um, for me, we had a, one of our sons had Crohn's disease. So one of my first uh, major volunteer things that I did uh, besides being on boards at our synagogue and things like that was um, working for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation as a volunteer. And it's because it had a personal connection to me. I don't think it's selfish to contribute your volunteer hours to something that has meaning to you. Uh, since then, I think my, my main volunteer activity these days is mentoring at Hollywood Hills High School uh, because the commission work is, you know, for it's not high paying, so I consider that in somewhat volunteer, but the um, mentoring high school girls is something for me that's been really rewarding as the mom of three boys. Um, I never really had uh, an opportunity to hang out with teenage girls before, and that's been really great. So just what you're interested in is, I think, the best way to spend your time. It should not be a chore. It should be a joy. Thank you. Yes. Um, so, Mrs. Shuham, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us today. We really enjoyed having you. Well, it was my pleasure. I'm so amazed at the work you two have done. It's really very professional, and you should be very proud of yourselves. Thank you. We hope Thanks. the listeners enjoyed our conversation as much as we did. Please check out our other episodes and visit us on Instagram at Be the Blank Podcast. See you soon.